Man, I'm super excited. Starting I love this show. And this is like, a, a, man, is I, get, I have lots of highlights so of the week. This is definitely one of the high lights of the week for exits. sure, man. What's up, Richie Ote? What's going on, Steve? How are you, my brother, my brother? questions, we sit down with Tom Good, very good. We sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run $10 million plus businesses, and we get to the nuts and bolts on how they did it. So we're super happy to have you here. And we're super happy to have today's guest with us, Senor Mitch Russo. That's how you walk into a room, right? When they introduce you, they introduce you as Senor Mitch Russo. Is that still correct? They hand me the beer and say, the most interesting man in the room has arrived. (laughs) (laughs) And then Wade walks in. Okay, sweet, man. So (laughs) great, great, great having you here. And just so we're clear right out of the gate, how do you meet the criteria for the Best Business Podcast? Did you exit from a business for more than $10 million, or do you currently run a $10 million-plus business? I exited from a business that I sold for more than $10 million. Gotcha. How long ago was that, and what was the name of that business? The name of the business was Time Slips Corporation, and I sold it to Sage PLC of, uh, of the United Kingdom, and that all took place in 1998. Wow. So, all right. Awesome. So 20 years ago, you're celebrating the 20-year anniversary on that. Was that, uh, was that an eight-figure exit, a nine-figure exit? How, how big were you able to get uh, it off that? Of was that? An egg, that was an eight-figure exit. Nice. And in 1998 terms, that's like $2 billion today, man. So well, well <laughs> done on that. And what, what did Time Slips do, and how did you get started with that business? Time Slips was a software company, and what we did is we kept track of time for our clients. So our clients would buy our little software product, and, and it, would, um, it would keep track of their time and manage their time and then bill their time. So, uh, so if you're an attorney or uh, a doctor or something of that nature, that's who would use that product? Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. And at the time that you started that, was that out of demand? Were you a doctor or an attorney or something of that nature? Did you need, did you need it yourself or how did that come about? You know, Steve, it's a funny story. <clears throat> it turns out that um, the need had nothing to do with being an attorney. Excuse me a second. Got a drink. Yeah, we don't want you to die. Yeah. That would be, be a first. I don't think we've ever had anybody die on the show before, so hopefully you will not be with the first. So, yes, please take your water. <laughs> so, I do not plan on dying yes, during please, the show. Please don't. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to embarrass you. But uh... <laughs> not, It's got nothing to do with I don't want to die. <laughs> it's just I don't want to embarrass yeah. What a sweet yeah. guy. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs> it's, it's perfectly okay. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so you weren't a doctor. You weren't an attorney. Right. So what ended up happening is that I bought a personal computer and I wanted to deduct it myself from my own taxes. Mm. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I, and I okay? couldn't do it. <laughs> We're yeah. okay, good. We're okay. Good. Sorry. It's got you all choked up, man. It's a, it's a story. I know you don't tell it to too many people, man, so I appreciate you doing that. I didn't realize it was going to get you so choked up. I apologize. It's all um, good. Yeah, so it turns out that I wanted to deduct my computer from my taxes and my accountant said the only way to do that is to keep contemporaneous record keeping of my computer usage. And so I said, okay. And I uh, happened to be friends with the guy who was an award-winning programmer. And we went to breakfast one morning and I told them the problem I'm having. 
And he said, well, let's talk about this. What do you mean, keep track of time? And I said, well, according to the IRS, I need to document every minute I spend on the computer that I'm using it for business. And I said to myself, my goodness, that's that's a daunting task. There's got to be a software program that does this. I can't be the only person in the world with this problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, turns out there was no other software that did this. There was nothing else out there that, that did something just that simple. I mean, in, in hindsight, it seems so unbelievably logical, for lack of a better term, that you would want a piece of software to do that. There was nothing else that existed? Nothing. And in fact, um, you know, deducting your personal computer was a big deal. My PC cost uh, $5,000 back then. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and back then, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, it's obviously with inflation, it's a, it's a lot more money. So, yep. wow. So how did you go about creating it? Were you a computer pro? I mean, obviously, the, you know, 98. I mean, I, I think I had my first computer uh, back in, you know, 91, 92, 93. So somewhere in there, but 98, you know, still kind of early. Were you, well, that's actually when you sold it. What year was it that you, that you uh, built it? Yeah, that's that's the right question. See, in 1985, uh, I was watching as Bill Gates was publishing this program called Basic mm-hmm. and DOS and all this. Stuff. I was at the beginning of the computer revolution, Steve. That's how old I really am. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched with fascination as this guy was building this amazing company called Microsoft, and I felt like I was missing out. And I wanted to build something. I wanted to be in the software business. And so this was my entry point. And I was not a programmer. Uh, in fact, I was a salesman. Uh, and I grew up with my dad in New York. And we he had candy stores all over Manhattan. And so I really got the entrepreneurial fever from my father. Mm-hmm. And so when I had this idea and I discussed it with my next door neighbor, he happened to be the programmer. And I described the problem to him. I didn't expect him to try and solve it. I just asked him for advice. And about six weeks later, he called me over to his little office, which was next door to my house. (laughs) And I said, what do you got? And he opened up the screen and showed it to me. And it was exactly what we had talked about, um, but in a simulator. He used a a little program on an Apple II to create it. And I said, well, that's it, man. That's exactly what I want. So he said, well, um, I know you can't use it because it's on an Apple II. I said, no, no, no. It has to be on a PC. So he said, well, I don't know. I'll see if I can get a PC. I said, look, do you want to start a company? And maybe if you can create it, uh, we can sell a couple of these things. And he said, sure, just like that. No problem. So, you, so, so your dad actually built the software? You were just having a casual conversation with him, and, and he turned around and built the software? Not my dad, my next-door neighbor. Next-door neighbor, sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, no, my, my dad is my entrepreneurial inspiration. Yes. But, but uh, my next-door neighbor, Neil is the guy who built the software. Ah, okay. Sorry, and I missed that we, piece. We, oh, yeah. We, put, we both put $5,000 each into a bank account. We got incorporated, and we were in business. And for the next six months, he worked on the software. I worked on the documentation. I worked on putting the structure of how to sell this thing in place. I did research as to where it could be sold. And I then, a month before we were about to release, I went in. I resigned from my job, as he did as well. And there we are on the day we're releasing our product. It's about 10 a.m. in the morning, and the phone rings, and it's my accountant. He goes, Mitch, I got some bad news for you. I said, what's up? He says, you know that ruling that the IRS had on contemporaneous record keeping? I said, yeah, that's exactly why we're building this company. He says, hmm, they just relaxed the ruling. 
you don't have to do that anymore. I said, what? Yeah, what do right. you mean they just relaxed the ruling? I'm out of business? He says, sorry, bud, and hung up. So here I was, 10 a.m., no job. My partner, no job. But we had a finished piece of software. So I looked at him. He looked at me. He said, what do we do? I said, well, look, we just created something really cool. How else can we use it? How can we, and I, there was no such word at the time, the way we use it today, called pivoting. How can we pivot this thing? How mm -hmm. can we reinvent what we have to be something better, different, and serve a greater need. And then we started thinking of who has to keep track of time. And that's when it hit us, lawyers, accountants, mm -hmm. consultants. Mm -hmm. That's who has to keep track of time. And so what we did is he said, well, and I said to Neil, I said, Neil, we need a billing system. Did you ever write a billing system before? He said, well, as a matter of fact, I did. I wrote a billing system for hairdressers. And I said, close enough. There's lawyers, hairdressers. They're about the same. So <laughs> we then started doing research. And for three months, what we did is we did research into commercial time and billing applications and started <clears throat> borrowing features from other products. Mm -hmm. And that's how we came out with the beta version of time slips. Interesting. So, so what you had created originally didn't exist, but there were other sort of time tracking software tools that were out there so what, what were when you first came out of the gate what, who were some of the biggest competitors what were some of the names uh of folks that were that were doing something similar to what you were doing sure well let's make a distinction here what everybody else was doing was called the back-end software so uh lawyers viewed keyboards as women's work that's their viewpoint. That in 1985, that was the viewpoint. They're not secretaries. They don't touch computers. Except that there was a growing population of new, uh, younger attorneys who loved computers and who were engaging with them directly for research and for word processing. So for those were our target market. And the bet we made is that we made two basic bets. The first bet is that the PC price of PCs would decrease to the point where there could be a, a computer on every desk. Number one. Number two, that more and more lawyers would adopt the PC as a desktop tool for their own use. And we were, luckily, we were right on both counts. And when we first published the software, ZRs was a front end or front of office tool. It was active. You popped it up. You turned on a taxi meter. It was keeping track of time. Mm -hmm. It looked very cool on the screen. But the back-end stuff is where all of our competitors were. And we caught them basically with their pants down at that point because mm -hmm. the, the back-end stuff was easy to duplicate. Yeah. I mean, that was just billing statements. Yeah. So this is – so just so I'm clear, this is 85 then when you guys are doing this? This is uh, – Yep. Yeah. So it's 85. So your first viable product that you were able to sell, what year, what year was that that you actually went to market with something to sell? Was that also 85? Uh, it was. It was at the very end of 1985. Mm -hmm. I think it was December of 1985 that we uh, we went to New York City for the Legal Tech Trade Show. Mm. That was our first trade show. Okay. Yeah. Interesting application to try to get it out the door. So you went to a trade show. What were you selling it for in sort of that beta mode at that point? We were selling it for $99, $99 a copy. And that's a lifetime license. They can use it however they want. Or was that a yearly or how did you structure that? No, it was back then the, the way that you sold stuff was that it was uh, it was lifetime one-time license fee, but then we would sell upgrades every year. Mm -hmm. So 99 bucks, you'd have some upgrades. Uh, what happened at that at that first event when you guys brought it to market there? I mean, you obviously had to invest in a in a trade show booth and try to get people to 
gather around a computer and look at what it was that you were doing there. What, uh, what was that experience like? Well, we had opened the doors, if you will, about 30 days before that trade show. And the $10,000 we had invested had uh, pretty much disappeared. I mean, we had things to buy and we had to get started. Um, and, um, I got a phone call from mom, you know, and mom was checking in and says, hi, honey, how's it going? I said, it's going pretty good. We're getting ready for a trade show. And she says, how's it really going? Yeah. <laughs> I said, mom, I got to tell you the truth. We're out of money. We are not sure how we're going to make it to New York. Uh, we don't have a trade show booth, but we have a folding table and a sheet. So we have to find a TV set we could display our software on and plug it into a laptop. And she said, don't worry, honey, everything's going to work out fine. I said, thanks, Mom, and hung up. Mm -hmm. And I went back to work on trying to find a, a sheet big enough to cover the table. The, the amazing thing was what happened to me two days later. So two days later, a very rare event occurred in at my house in Hamilton, Massachusetts. A FedEx truck showed up at my house and rang my doorbell. And, I mean, I had heard of FedEx. I might have even seen the trucks on the street. But it was called the Federal Express back then. 85, and, yeah. 85, right. 86, yeah. Yep. And they're ringing my doorbell. And what the heck is – so I answer the door. There's the driver. He hands me an envelope. He says, sign right here. Mm -hmm. I sign right there. And I, yeah, as soon as he turns around, I zip open the envelope. And there's 10000 in cash with a note from my mom. Hi, honey. Hope this helps. Love, mom. Uh. <laughs> well, that's good to have mom, right? I mean, geez, that's uh, and 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 again, eighty-five. I mean, you know, that's 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 a nice, yeah, it's a nice starter fund to to kind of get you to where you needed to go. So your plan was actually just to go to New York without buying space. You were just going to kind of set up a, a table somewhere near the exhibit hall and try. No, no, we did actually have enough money to buy the space. We had already paid for the the location the physical spot inside the trade show okay but they just didn't we, have a i mean just didn't have okay i got you right yeah exactly, exactly i got you so so you ended up going you ended up buying a booth i'm sure with that money make it made, made it look decent i assume and uh and mm, nah, not, not at all no didn't have time not, to we do didn't, that no we didn't have time yeah. we showed up we rented a 25 inch tv set and we we connected it up to the laptop Wait, you, computer you, you splurged on the 25 huh that's yeah, nice, we rented. Man. We didn't buy. We rented. <laughs> You're right. Splurged on the 25, you know. Oh, well, yeah. come on, Steve. Remember the date. There right? wasn't very many bigger ones. It was ones. huge. That, and that, that was, was probably, a, probably weighed like 300 pounds at that point, right? <laughs> it, oh, my it God. It did, yeah. Funny. All right, yeah. So, you set up, so you set up the monitor, uh, a big 25-inch TV on uh, on the table there. Yep. And, now, uh, and what happened? As luck would have it, that week there was a review of our software in one of the minor legal journals, uh, and it happened to be in New York. And there we were in New York. So actually... But hold on, our, you got to back up for a second. So did you send out, did you send this out, like, uh, in its beta version or to mm -hmm. some of the, uh, like, did you hire a PR company? Like, how did, how did you get press around this thing? Sure. So I, 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 now remember, we didn't have much money at all. So my thinking was that the cheapest way to get any type of sales and is to and publicity is to do it through PR. Yeah. So I just started doing research and to find out what are all of the legal journals that have a technology section or have a technology editor, and um, the the New York Law Journal happened to have a technology editor. Mm -hmm. So 
I packaged up a copy of the software on on our floppy disks and our pretty disc. book. Nice. Floppy disks, baby. Nice. And uh, and luckily that week, by pure chance, he happened to review the software in the New York Trade Journal, mm -hmm. and our booth was swamped. Wow. So talk about really, really great timing. So you, you go to this event. How many copies did you sell at that event? Do you remember? You know, we probably sold about 30 or 35 copies. But the most exciting thing that happened to us is that one of the other vendors, in fact, all of the other vendors were trying to figure out how is this tiny little crappy little booth so popular? What's going on over there? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they ventured over, they came over and started a conversation with me. And uh, on the floor of the show on the third day, I got a buyout offer on the spot. Wow. Yep. So they offered us a hundred grand to buy the company, lock, stock, and barrel. Mm. And you said obviously no, but I mean that must have been pretty tempting. I mean, you go from you got to borrow ten grand from mom. I mean, that's you know it's got to be pretty tempting to pay her back and and pocket forty five k each. No. Yeah, it was, but we knew what we had. I mean, at that point, once we saw the reaction, and once we started seeing, and and by the way, you know, the phone was ringing off the hooks back home as well. So we were taking orders over the phone from people who had read the news piece. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, I doubled down on PR. I really knew at that point that PR was the way to go. Yeah. And, and that and really so, hasn't changed. I mean, it's obviously now it's just taking forms of podcasts and, and other sort of new media. But that, that really hasn't changed, has it? So let's, let's go through the next step then. So now you've got, I mean, the market demand is there. You're selling some product and you know i'll be at 30 35 copies or whatever to pop there uh, what did you do uh, you keep going down the the pr path i'm sure get other folks to talk about it what, what would you what would you say was that most important next step that you had to take there to then really begin scaling and let's go into 86 what was your revenue as far as 86 goes so just answer those two questions sure the the simple way to answer the question is that um uh, right after New York, the, the New York Legal Tech Show, I got on a plane and went to Las Vegas for uh, Comdex, which was the big computer show. And I spent almost 10 days walking around. I had 100 copies of my software with me, and I walked around and visited as many possible uh, opportunities I could find. So if there was a magazine, a PC magazine of any sort, I would find the editor, I'd give him a copy, I'd chat it up a bit and move on. Mm. And so I was looking for all kinds of bundle deals, editorial opportunities, and I did that right after Legal Tech. So, so we were still at a point where we were running classified ads for 30 or $40, selling three, four, five copies per ad, and that was working. So as we went into 1986. So hold on. I just uh, want to run those quick numbers there. So if you're selling, mm -hmm. you know, even just a few copies, you spend 30 bucks, you get 300 bucks. Uh, that's a deal I think you would do all day long, even today. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, oh, sure. Yeah. So yeah, very, and, very effective then, even if it was just a, a little bit at a time. Obviously, it doesn't grow you into a multimillion dollar business, but it uh, effective. You've proven it out. You run in enough places. It starts to work. So, OK. So eighty six, you uh, so revenue wise, where were you at? Well, again, we're we're we barely cracked. Uh, I mean, for for oh, you mean in total for eighty six? In total for eighty six, yeah. Do you remember oh, yeah. generally where you were in that first, uh, for, in that first full year? Yeah, I'm trying to get a handle, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I I remember that 
um, in 86, it turns out that we had a very lucky break. So we were probably about 1.5 million in, in 1986. Wow. We closed 1986 with 1.5 million. Wow. So what was that lucky break? I mean, that, that's a huge jump from selling 30, 40 copies at a trade show to, I mean, to get to one and a half million at a hundred bucks a pop. I mean, that's 10,000 copies or actually it's more than so it's 15,000 copies. We're getting to a million and a half. So how, how did you end up moving that many units? Well, okay. So here's what happened. Um, I told you I went to Comdex and I walked around and I yeah. dropped off a lot of copies. And at that point I came home and I had a couple of follow-ups, but that was it pretty much went back to work placing small classified ads, trying to make other connections for reviews and basically dealing with, I mean, at that point it was just a, the, the three of us. It was myself, my partner, and our first hire was a PR intern. Oh, smart. And, yeah. And so she kept plugging away and plugging away. And, and then at that point, we, after we started selling copies, we uh, had to do support because we had people calling in with software problems, of course, with anything. And so we hired a support person. And so slowly we're scaling the company. And it was in 1986 that we actually left the garage and moved into rental space, which is one room of about 1,500 square feet, 1,600 square feet or so. And um, that's really where the company really, really got founded. But here's the interesting thing that happened. Um, we get a phone call about six months after Comdex and this uh, person introduced themselves as a fact checker for InfoWorld. Hi, I'm calling from InfoWorld. We're just calling to check a couple of facts. Hmm. I said, sure, well, how can I help you? Because we, we just want to find out the name of the company is Time Slips Corporation, and it was started in this date and that date, and, and your address is this, and your phone numbers are this. I said, yes. He said, I, said, I said, well, why are you checking facts? And he said, oh, uh, there's going to be a review of your software, but uh, we can't, we don't know when. We, we're here just to check the facts. Mm. So now we're freaking out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. InfoWorld's going to review our software. I mean, this was like the the biggest event that any software company could have InfoWorld could destroy a company with a mildly positive review. So wait, InfoWorld was a, a magazine, a physical magazine? It was. It, it was, was a, a weekly okay. a weekly magazine that came out uh, on in the in the PC industry. It was the Bible of the PC industry. Hmm. And so that was 86 uh, going toward, you know, about six months after the show they well, call you. Me, yeah, please. Yeah. So what ended up happening is that, you know, meanwhile, I keep calling the chains, the store chains. I'm trying to get on the retail shelves at store chains. Nobody will talk to me. Calling the distributors. Say, hey, uh, can we get uh, our software on your shelves? Um, and frankly, they said, uh, nope, not interested until you have enough demand. So we're struggling trying to get. We're still selling 12, 15 copies a week. Not much, really, maybe 20 some weeks. Um, 25 other weeks. And then all of a sudden it was 6 a.m. in the morning and the phone rings and it's ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and it wouldn't stop. We had five lines. They were all lit up. Everybody is calling to place an order for time slips. Mm. And I'm saying, oh my God, what's happening? What's, why are you calling? They said, oh, you, you didn't know you, you got reviewed in InfoWorld. I said, no, 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 we didn't get our issue yet. You know, it was like a Monday or something. So now at this point, we're getting phone calls from Egghead Discount Software, mm. from from all of the major software distributors. Uh, we're getting calls from from all the publishing distributors as well. Next thing you know, we you know 
uh, distributor calls up and say, uh, yes, is this Time Slips Corporation? Yes, we'd like to place an order for 600 copies. So now at this point, we had to double the price because we were getting $99 each before, but we we didn't want to sell it for $50 through the, to the distributor. Right. So we doubled the price to $199 so we could still basically generate 99 bucks to us mm -hmm. on a per-user basis. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. at, at that point, I mean, if you were just selling direct, I mean, all you're doing is just the cost of replicating the disc. So your, your your cost of goods, so to speak, is pretty nil. I mean, they're buying direct. You don't have a wholesaler. So it totally makes sense. And now you're saying, I mean, obviously, if the market is just clamoring for it at 99, you could probably double the price, which you did. So you still get your 99 and then the wholesaler, you know, you wholesale it out at that. And then they're able to get a pretty, I mean, at 50%. You know, Marco or a hundred percent Marco, fifty percent margin. I mean, it's pretty, you know, pretty damn good. Sure. Yeah. So the distributor buys it from us for about the same hundred bucks. Uh, they sell it to uh, Egghead Software for about one hundred and twenty-five. Egghead Software puts it on the shelves, discounts it down to about one hundred and sixty-nine, and people walk in the store, pick it up, read the back, and go, "Yes, yeah, oh, I heard about this software," and they walk up to the cash register and purchase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at some point there, did you have to have another key higher then to because obviously the growth then skyrocketed and and I think honestly the, mm, the the lesson learned here is in terms of a higher and and it's sort of um an atypical higher really when you come right down to it, in terms of a PR intern because if it's just by by pure definition if it's an intern then you're not even paying this person anyway right but. That's a that's a pretty genius move in terms of that being the next person outside of the founder to hire. So, were you? What was your thinking around that? I mean, that's just a really brilliant move when you come right down to it. Because not only is that person free, but in terms of impact on your business, just massive. Yeah. Now she was free for the first few months while she was working her internship, but we hired her. Uh, and we didn't obviously we're not going to pay someone. Uh, she's still in college even, and we still hired her and are paying her a small salary. Uh, but she was excited about it, loved doing it, and she was making a lot of progress. And see, the the very nice way that we set this up is that she would get the editor uh, to uh, agree to talk to me. So I was the authority, and I was you know basically rolled in only after all of the arrangements were made. So. She would call in advance, make everything happen. I'd get on the phone. I was very good at being interviewed. And uh, and frankly, I would get on a plane if I had to. I Many times I flew to New York to meet with editors or meet with Forrester Research Group or any of these companies. They happened to be in Massachusetts uh, because really that was my life. In fact, I ended up in 1980, uh, let's see, 87, I ended up going to almost a hundred PC user groups all over the country. Hmm. So twice, three times a week sometimes, I would drive or fly to a university campus or a hotel room where a bunch of people were had gotten together because they are a PC user group. Uh, sort of like a meetup, if you yeah, will. Yeah, sure. And uh, I, would, I would show up, I would bring my little projector and my screen and my computer and i would do a little dog and pony show and mm -hmm. at the at the end of the evening i would uh open up a couple of boxes and let people buy software wow so your first uh again orders start coming in from uh, you know some of the bigger box stores uh, what what was your next hire then how did you how did you begin how did you handle that growth 
Sure. So the first thing I realized is that I just needed to start delegating. And it was very hard for me, Steve. I, I got to tell you, I really had to learn to delegate. I was just so focused on getting everything done myself. Um, but we did. We started to hire people until uh, until really uh, we got to the point where um, I just needed to free up more of my time. My partner was doing great. He was cranking out the software. We hired uh, a test person for him. So everything he did got tested. Then we hired a junior coder to help him. Uh, on my end, I hired a marketing uh, person, a marketing manager, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that person started working with the art and creative side to make sure that our retail packages were nice and make sure that we had all of what we needed in terms of brochures for trade shows and things to hand out at events. So it slowly built along the lines of sales and marketing. We were a sales and marketing driven company with a very strong technical back end. Mm. Yeah, super smart, man. So at your peak, how many employees did you did you have and what were what were you taking home as far as uh, the net goes for you and your partner? Let's see. At the peak, we had about a little under 100 people, did probably really? 98. Yeah, yeah, we had wow. almost 100 people. Yeah, wow. yeah. Yeah, well, don't forget, you know, a big part of the operation was tech support. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. another, the second biggest department was sales mm -hmm. or customer service. So we we had a lot of people in tech support until I figured out how to create something that changed our history forever. When I I stumbled upon an idea that became the Time Slip Certified Consultant Program, and that actually became the app the most powerful thing i had ever ever stumbled across and it came about because of a hap just a circumstance that happened really almost out of thin air and if you like i could tell you the story of how that happened um yeah, i mean look i'm i'm definitely interested in that and richie and I'm, I'm sure you've got a, a ton of questions as well here as i've been dominating the mic uh but just but just so just so i'm clear with the with the the number of employees that you had, I mean, you went from a very lean, mean operation to having, like you said, almost a hundred people. So at the peak, what were you doing revenue wise? At the absolute peak, you were doing ten and a half. That was the peak. Yep, that was the peak. Okay, wow. So you know, so per employee. Yeah, you were doing. I guess what was that? About fifteen, about fifteen thousand dollars. Then no. In, no, you were doing one hundred and fifty thousand. One hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, in revenue per employee. Just add a zero, Steve. So one hundred and fifty thousand in revenue per employee. In hindsight, do you think you were too fat? You know, back then uh, we were shooting for a hundred k. Hundred k per employee was the standard back then. Yeah, uh, because frankly, that's what the that's what the revenue was able to support and and by the way we were super profitable i mean we would struggle every year to try and suppress the profit uh, because we wanted to plow more back into marketing into the company mm -hmm. as opposed to paying taxes mm -hmm. um but then realized at one point they said you know what it was the the grand the grand awakening uh came on the day that uh somebody someone who we truly respected came to consider buying our company. Uh, and this was years before we sold it. And we showed him the books and he said, well, where's your profit? And I was sounding 
thinking that I was sounding so clever telling them, well, listen, you know, we don't really show a lot of profit. And the guy said to me, well, listen, then you're not a real company. Mm. I mean, you know, you can't, if you can't show profit and you don't pay your taxes, then as far as any, any acquirer is concerned, you're just not a real company. So you better figure out how to fix that or else you're never going to either sell this company or you're never going to make the progress that you really want. Wow. Yeah, and, and before the math majors start writing in, okay, it's 105,000 per employee. <laughs> so, yeah. so hold yep. up on the emails on that. So you you were right around the uh, the average in terms of what people were, were trying to get to. Yep. But reality is you were plowing it all back into the company, which of course then begs the question of were you even thinking about continuing to scale, looking to exit? Were you just content? Yeah, so my partner... Uh, very interesting guy. Uh, turns out that, and I didn't know this when we met, and I didn't know this until we were deep into building the company together. My partner happened to be an heir to one of the founding families of America. And it turns out that he and his family had amassed uh, somewhere around a half a billion dollars that they, a, a tiny little nondescript office in Beverly, Massachusetts, was managing for the family. Mm. So, he wanted to work with me and build this company to prove to everybody in the world that he had worth mm-hmm. because, you know, when you grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth, then, and you never have to work ever in your entire life. Yeah. It's, it's not particularly good for the self-esteem if you haven't figured that out. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So he really wanted to prove to the world that he was great at something and, and I was glad that he did. And I never took any of the, his family money. In fact, we had a rule that said he could never, ever invest more than I did so that the share, the 50-50 share, never shifted. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we held to that for the entire time. But what what was interesting about the, the process is that he got to the point where he said to me, Mitch, uh, how much longer do you think I'm going to have to do this? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, it's it's almost seven years at this point. It's getting to be nine years now and I'm getting a little tired of this. I'd like to go back to the life I had before, right. which was, wi- which was having the silver spoon and not yeah. having to prove anything <laughs> to anybody. So right. so in his mind, he was like, OK, I'm ready to to exit this thing. And in your mind, you're like, Jesus this is a great cash cow. You know, it's providing a nice lifestyle. So. So that's an interesting thing right there. I mean, the dynamic between partners where you have two very different agendas. So did you buy him out? I tried. I tried to buy him out. I tried to bring in uh, another investor. And I uh, we couldn't come to an agreement until mm-hmm. really the only option was to sell the company. And um, at that point, you know, we knew that we were going to it was going to take some years to get that done mm-hmm. and he was in no hurry he just wanted to be and by the way to be clear he was he to this day is one of my best friends in the world mm-hmm. and we still we still hang out and go to rock concerts together i mean he's Sweet. he's I will, really i will gladly take his money by the way so an intro would be awesome we've got a bunch of things on the table i think he'll be interested in so uh cool. yeah so we'll, we'll we'll chat about that no i'm playing on it well not really but um but no, I, t- I totally get it. And it's awesome because you had an amicable sort of uh, parting of the ways, if you will. You ended up selling it. What was the um, – generally, how did you sell? Was it a multiple of sales? Was it a multiple of net? What was the general metric around that? So so we worked with a broker at first to help come up with the price. And that was how do we determine the price of a company 
and how do we market that company? Well, the broker we hired, no names, uh, turned out to be a complete total waste of money. Mm -hmm. um, but what he did do is he helped us get the pricing right. And what we did is just like you would sell a house, he did an, a survey of what other companies in this space were selling for with a growth multiple of ours and all that. So we had come up with a specific price that we wanted to sell the company for. And um, uh, it turns out that I started shopping the company myself and ended up coming up with two buyers at the same time. And one buyer said to me, um, we, we love your company. We love what you're doing. Uh, we don't want to move a single thing or change a single thing, and we'll pay you your asking price. The other company said, uh, we think you uh, have a great company. We love what you've done, but we think you could do much more, and we want to give you a share of the upside, uh, but we'll mm -hmm. only pay you about half of what uh, you're asking in cash, and the other half will give you double the upside. Mm -hmm. So I said, hmm, tell me more. Uh, and that's the guy we ended up going with. And that, that guy turned out to be a guy named Kevin Howe, and he was running uh, the, he was running Sage US at the time, and he bought our company um, on behalf of Sage. Hmm. And when he did, uh, he wanted to move the whole company at first, and I talked him out of that. I said, look, for stability purposes, why don't we just move my management team and keep the Boston operation so that we can keep tech support and sales and customer service intact? And he agreed. Mm -hmm. So I moved my 12 executives and myself and, and my family and all their families to t Dallas, Texas. And we worked at the Sage facility for two years during the earnout period. Hmm. So did the did your partner get the cash and then your compensation was going to come in terms of the upside? No. In fact, my partner said to me, listen, you know, to our pledge of friendship, I'm here until the end, until you earn the last dollar, I am going to stick with this. And so he stuck through the and worked happily through the entire two-year earnout period wow. side by side with me. So he moved to Dallas too? No, he stayed in Massachusetts because mm -hmm. he was running the tech division, and that was in Massachusetts. Got it. Got it. Well, so you ended up, did you end up getting the, the double uh, multiple on that second half? Yeah, we did. We we got it almost to the penny. I mean, we 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 maxed it out. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, when it, when when dollar came to dollar, it turns out that um, we had increased profits. By the way, working under Sage, we'd increased profits by five hundred percent. Wow, yeah, that's so, that's unbelievable. So, really great story, and obviously the trials and tribulations and ups and downs that go uh, hand in hand with any. Uh, entrepreneur and endeavor and, and fortunately everything worked out for you in the end uh, what did you you know if there was any sort of uh, if you had to summarize that experience in terms of the process of, of starting and scaling and exiting a business what what do you say to an entrepreneur who's thinking about starting scaling exiting a business what, what, what advice would you give them well um, the things, the mistakes that I made is I started a company without really understanding the market. I thought because I'm a brilliant young man and I had a good idea, that was all it took. And it turns out completely wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's far from all it takes. And I wasn't so brilliant mm -hmm. as it turned out. So the idea behind all of this was to, I mean, we, we basically stumbled our way through 
this. And with a little bit of luck, we made the right decisions and a little bit of savvy, too. I'm going to give myself some credit for that. I mean, we did figure out a lot of stuff. Um, and for the most part, um, you know, we figured it out in a way that allowed us to make the progress that we made. And we took advantage, very entrepreneurial, that we took advantage of so many of these things. But the advice I would give folks is it doesn't happen the way you think it will. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, it's that old saying, man plans, God laughs. Mm -hmm. And, and let me tell you, we must have cracked them up good time because we, we had so many plans that just had to be reversed at the last minute, but it all worked out in the end. It turns out that, you know, if you, if you are willing to stick with it and if you are willing to pivot along the way and change direction and adjust everything based on real results, then as the longer you stick with it, the better chances you have of actually making it. Interesting. Yeah, Richie, I know you've been uh, kind of sitting on the edge of your chair here throughout, man. What uh, What's coming to mind for you? Uh, uh, it's, it's a tough one right now. With, I mean, are we going through to the next <laughs> Yeah, segment? we're going. We're going. We're going. Um, man, so many because most of them, usually you know with me, are contextual questions. So it's like <laughs> I'm like, uh, do I go back to the first one or the second one or the 72nd thing I want to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what really stood out for me, Mitch, was it sounds as if your your decision to work with the wholesale market is really what launched it more than a strategic hire or anything. Once once you started getting wholesale orders, you could move at scale. That was like having employees that weren't employees. And so I'm wondering... Like, did you – so in this model, when you did upgrades, because I know it's so much has changed, and, there's, and I know some things you're doing now, so I, like, literally have 20 other questions, but it's more with software as a service more so mm -hmm. than the way software used to work. Um, how did it work when you sold it wholesale and when it came back and you had to do all the – customer service end of it. I mean, that was part of the problem with that industry. You could have someone else, you could make money selling it to someone else, but you still had to do all the servicing. When they opened up the software, it was your company they called, not Egghead, not all these other stores. They called you. So of that hundred, here, here would be the main question, of that hundred in the scenario you're in, how much of that was your support staff? More than half? You turn 100 employees? Yeah, out yeah. of the 100 employees. Well, yes, sort of. So as the company was scaling, uh, we were we were probably 40% of our people were support. But I, I, I alluded to this earlier. I figured something out. I stumbled across something by accident that changed this dramatically. And, and to this day, it's still something that I work with clients to help them create. It's called certification. And what happened was I had a very important client in Los Angeles, and she called frantic and said, time slips crashed my computer, and I'm going to write a bad review in, in the California Bar Association magazine if you don't get out here and fix it right now. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we yeah. sold the software for $99. <laughs> We're in Boston, Massachusetts, and she wants us to fly out and fix her computer. Okay, so here's what I did. I looked in the database, and I said, hmm. I know this woman. She's really, really good, and she was 20 minutes from this other person's office. I called her up. I said, hi, um, you don't know me. My name is Mitch Russo. And she goes, Mitch Russo? Are you kidding me? I love you, Mitch Russo. You're my hero. I said, why? He goes, well, I saw you speak at uh, 
uh, at the PC users group and you signed my copy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I said, can I ask you a favor? Would And I'll pay you if you like, no problem. Would you mind going over to this person's office and seeing if you could help her? Oh, I'd love to. I'd be happy to. I'd be thrilled to. So I gave her the address. She goes over there. And I'm now on pins and needles wondering what's happening and waiting for that phone call. Four hours later, I finally get a phone call, and it's her. Her name is Ann. I said, Ann, tell me what's happened. What's happening? She goes, oh, it, it's all fixed. It was it was just a problem. She didn't install the database right. It's all fixed. She loves time slips. It's running great now. I said, oh, thank you so much, Ann. I don't know what to say. She goes, oh, you want to hear the best part? I said, sure. She goes, she gave me a hundred dollar bill, well, and then and at not that not a bill time, to pay, but actually like a, a paid money. her money, cash <laughs> right? Money. money, yeah, cash money. And that's when the light bulb went off above my head. Mm-hmm. And she then she said to me, "And if there's anybody else you know who would like some help with time slips, you just let me know." And then I thought to myself, "Imagine how many customers I have. I, I had tens and tens of thousands of customers that." If I could take a small percentage of them, the best of the best, and test them and turn them into certified consultants, that I could deploy these people to help my customers all over the country, maybe even all over the world. And you're helping that support team. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got it. That's super smart. Super smart. So, uh, Richie, what, I, I know you had, like I said, I know you got a ton of them, but what's, uh, we had just, mm, don't have that much time, but what's, uh, if you had to kind of boil it down to one really important question here around starting, scaling, exiting, what, uh, what would that be? Let's see, again, since we limited time, I'd say, what, what, did, you, what did you not expect that you were going to have to break, and then you had to break it to get to the next level? Say, let's say that's from... One million to get to ten million in revenue. What, sure, you, you, you were never expecting you had to break X, but you had to, and you did, and that's what got you to ten. Or, yep, I'll tell you that it's a very, very clear image in my mind. That when you asked that question, I knew what to say. It was about a two and a half million dollars. Um, I had this realization that the management team that got me here will never get me to the next level mm. to five million. And I did something that was the hardest, one of the hardest things I ever did in the history of running that company is I basically fired my entire management team. Wow. And I, um, I had some people lined up in advance before I did this, but I, I hired, I fired my entire management team and I was, I, I gotta tell you, I mean, I was, I was crying, uh, because these were the people that went and drank with us after work every day and, and these are the guys that, that, you know, hung in there at the last minute to get everything going. And, and they were great people and I loved them, but they, they were beginners. Mm-hmm. We hired beginners because that's all we could afford. But now it was time to hire professionals. And that's what we did. And that's how we got to the next level. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting point. And you know, I just want to go back to something that you said early on, um, which is very relevant to so many of us in terms of just taking a look at where things are at and where the opportunities lie and what we could possibly be doing. But one of the things that I love that you said early on in this interview was uh, you, you started down this path of trying to create something for this whole uh, world of, uh, of technology and computers and so on and so forth was because you felt like you were missing out, like you didn't mm-hmm. want to miss out on that opportunity and you knew you had to, you didn't know exactly what it was going to be but you knew that there was an opportunity there 
in that industry doing something. So how how did you know that that was the right industry? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a million different things going on. You could have done something in cars. You could have done something in steel. You could have done something like a million real estate. You name it. But for whatever reason, that industry was the industry where you felt like there was this huge opportunity and you would have been missing out if you didn't jump in the game somehow. How, how does someone know what that industry is or what that opportunity is for them? You know, that's a – the answer is going to be subjective because, first of all, I loved computers. I, I grew up tinkering and being in the electronics space. I went to university, uh, Northeastern University for electrical engineering. So I, I knew I wanted to be in computers. Mm -hmm. I also knew that the PC was the newest, greatest, latest thing. And I had worked for a big mini computer company earlier on in my life and they missed the boat completely. It Mm -hmm. was, they had a huge blind spot to PCs. So I thought to myself, where, I mean, I'm I'm not going to build hardware. That's not where I fit. Where do I fit? And I just held that question in my mind. Where do I fit? What can I do given that I have skill, I have, I have time, I have energy? Where can, where does this work? And Mm -hmm. I started evaluating all these different possible opportunities. And that's when I just, as soon as I heard this and realized it, I knew it was right. Yeah. Well, look, man, we really do appreciate you taking the time to to be with us and sharing your wisdom here on the Best Business Podcast. And we didn't really have a chance to, to get into so much of what you had done afterwards, and your career is pretty storied. I mean, you worked with some of the biggest names uh, in various industries and, and so on. Uh, if people want to find out more information about you, uh, where's the best place for them to go? And what what is the, the number one thing on the play right now that you're up to? Sure. Uh, best place to go is MitchRusso.com. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing is I'm building, I just built another software company, basically, a SaaS-based company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about matching up people for accountability partnerships. And it's working fantastic. And mm-hmm. people are getting great results and loving the service. Mm-hmm. So in terms of growth, do you think you'll see the same sort of growth? Do you think it'll be exponentially faster? What What are you thinking based on what you learned before and now that you're, you know, to Richie's point, kind of shifting into that SaaS model, which, of course, is going to make uh, a lot more sense for the long run? What uh, how, how do you think that past experience plays into what you're doing now? You know, what, what's great about having experience is that uh, I, I now can iterate much faster than I ever could before. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying I, – I tried one way of marketing. It didn't work. I tried another way of marketing. It didn't work. I tried a third way of marketing. It worked. Mm-hmm. So now I'm – what I'm doing is I'm finding my bearings right now. I'm starting to generate revenue with this process and with this company. And I'm looking for what I feel is my sweet spot. And I'm not in a rush. I work it every every day, of course. But uh, I'm I'm determined. So – even though I'm not in a rush, I'm very determined to make it happen, and I will. Yeah. And lastly, one piece of advice that you would give to the either aspiring entrepreneur or the entrepreneur that's in the same uh, general boat as you are right now with your new endeavor, what do you tell them? I would tell you to get a mentor, get a coach, get get a business consultant, get somebody who could act like a time machine and bring you quickly into the future with your skills because there were certain people that that crossed my path at different times 
in in my journey that made all the difference in the world and it will make it the difference for you too yep awesome all right well mitch really do appreciate you joining us here on the best business podcast and sharing that journey of going from zero to exit and uh everything that you learned along the line you know along the way there man so really do appreciate that and of course as mitch said you can get more information at mitch russo russ Dot com Richie, pretty uh, pretty good stuff, man. You oh, know, yeah. I mean, we just keep hearing time and time again about the importance of uh, of staying the course, but making those really hard decisions. Can you imagine firing the whole management team that helped you get to you know zero to two and a half, and then having to fire everybody? Oh yeah, you're like you're having that conversation that everyone's heard a million times, but never wants it to be told to them. Mm-hmm. You know that what got us here didn't get us there, right? <laughs> yeah. well, thanks for helping us get here, but you're not going to be the ones that. That's a that's got to be a tough one. Yeah, but, but he's such a you know good guy. I'm sure he. Yeah. Broke it nice to him. Yeah, but you know? still, I mean, you know, all the upside is there, and you get that, you know, get that carpet pulled out from under you, and it's it's hard on on both sides. Wait, what uh, what were you thinking over there? Well, just the thing that kept reoccurring is, on the one hand, stay the course, you know, figure out your vision, but between the adaptions he did with the product, changing brokers when he's realizing the broker's not right, the willingness to change the management team, yeah. just the willingness shows- to double the price. Double the price was huge. Yeah, you, it just shows how you can't get stuck in your rut, and you have to have some capacity of stepping back and going, okay, if I shake things up, how does that look? Yeah, you know, I did find it really interesting that their um, their customer model changed, you know, in terms of let me just go to these trade shows and let me sell it one at a time and just get this in front of some people's hands, you know, into some people's hands to let me step out of the sales process almost altogether. And put it in the hands of those who are in the business of selling. Any uh, any thoughts around that, Richie? Oh, I think it's brilliant, and especially now. I mean, I could I could have went for a few more hours talking he... to him on the SaaS <laughs> side of stuff, right? But you know, which we, is the new model that he's pursuing, and it's as he should because yeah. there's never a mass ac- exodus in SaaS for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think so. You're you you said a particular question, or it was well, more of a I thought. mean, I, I just I just found it really interesting that you know as as he. As he learns uh, in in retrospect, you know, as you learn from what you did and what worked and what didn't, you apply it to something that's going. I just, I think the the, the bottom line here is that the entrepreneurs, you know, if you're if you're an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. Like you know, even if you sell for whatever you want, you got the money in the bank, you're still going to go on and do something else. And we so, create stuff and break stuff. We do. All right, my friends, we'll talk to you next time. Take care. You've been listening to Beyond Eight Figures. Share your thoughts on today's episode and what you'll apply to your business by emailing us at feedback at beyondafigures.com. And if you haven't already done so, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took a moment now to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Until next time, keep scaling.